Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I am Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is the second in our two-part series discussing healthcare disparities. Healthcare disparities are generally based on biases, many implicit. It has been surprising to me to learn how deeply and subtly embedded some of these disparities are, and yet many of these biases exist not only in daily practice, but also in some of our most trusted educational programs and institutions. Both Stan Thompson and Khadija Hay have returned to discuss these issues. Within Team Health, Stan is the leader of the DE&I Strategic Initiative, as well as the Chief Clinical Officer of the LifePoint Group, providing both EM and HM services. Khadija is Team Health's Chief Clinical Officer of OB Hospitalist Services and has researched and written a profound treatise on the history of healthcare disparities in this country. She's also a regularly contributing member of the Emerging Infectious Disease Task Force. So I'd like to start with a topic we're all addressing, and that's vaccination. Uh, Khadija, can you describe some of the fear surrounding vaccination during pregnancy or maybe more broadly uh, of females of childbearing age? I've heard this comment, well, it gets concentrated in the ovaries and or it's going to hurt my baby. Uh, What do you say to people expressing those concerns? So I've heard a lot of these concerns related to fertility, related to the impact on pregnancies. And to be very honest, the comments and the fears are wide ranging. It may be um, related to the fear of the vaccine causing infertility in the future, or the fear that the vaccine may result in increased risk of miscarriages or stillbirth. So the reality at this point is there is no evidence to indicate that there are any negative impact on fertility or on the pregnancy itself. So I really try to start with patients on educating them with respect to the data that we have available and really looking at the impact of the vaccine versus getting COVID-19 itself. And I think when we have the opportunity to speak to patients and empower them on the actual statistics and the facts that are out there that we know um, from from investigating and evaluating the vaccine, that is one of the ways in which I try to um, combat some of the misconceptions or the fear with respect to vaccines, but also showing them what the benefits are, in particular to the baby itself. You know, for mothers that are vaccinated, um, if they breastfeed, they can actually confer some antibodies to the baby, which can be somewhat protective to your newborn who may not have the defenses at that time to combat COVID-19. So those are just some ways in which I think we can address, one, the hesitancy and the fear, not to mock people or make them feel bad about having concerns, but really addressing those concerns head on and supporting them and making an educated uh, decision to get the vaccine. Khadija, how how does it come up? It comes up in a number of different ways. And interestingly enough, more so in my regular everyday life, really, than as a physician or clinician. I may encounter um, women that are pregnant and, you know, overhear a conversation. They may reach out and say, well, what do you think or what what are what is the data? Um, I may I may get questions from friends, from family members wanting to know more and understand the impact of it. So I think that is oftentimes the best opportunity to take the opportunity to educate you know, patients, whether they're your family or friends, meeting people where they are and helping to address some of those concerns. 
Great. Thank you for that. So, so Stan, I know that you're a, a leader in your church, and I believe that you said when you started discussing vaccination in your church com- community, the, the rate was really low. What, what happened there, and what did you do? Right. So that, that story on the church, you're right, Rob. I, I am a leader in my church, and it's a small, um, pr- predominantly Black church uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And you think we had stopped having church service during the majority of COVID because you can't social distance at church, especially at a black church, Rob. I don't know if you've ever been to a black church, but there's no social distancing. There's a lot of hugging and there's a lot of high-fiving and there's a lot of talk to your neighbor. If you never, I'm going to take, matter of fact, I'm going to, I'm going to take you on a field trip. You're going to my church, Rob, next time we're, we're together. I am so looking forward to that. All right. All right. (laughs) So, so we didn't have church service. Um, for the majority of COVID. So, and then when, when before the Delta wave, when things started to kind of get back to normal, me being the, the, the chief medical officer for my, for my church, a self-appointed title, I said, well, if we're going to have church, we're going to do this in a COVID safe way. And uh, so I hadn't been in front of my church doing, doing vaccination. So I hadn't had a chance to talk to people. And so when we were setting up the sign-in sheets, you know, just like you go to a restaurant, you put your name, your number, and you, you know, you have the signs. If you have any symptoms, are you having any symptoms? We were checking temperatures, all the stuff that you would do. But we also had a feel where you put whether you've been vaccinated or not. So this is in late March, April, right, kind of at the beginning, where most healthcare providers, most people over age 65, and it just started opening up to pretty much everybody, right? So that's around the time. At that time, all in, we were about 15% vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I said, ooh, not so good. And so and I didn't, we, didn't, we didn't sit down and do an action plan or anything like that. I just took it upon myself to have a conversation with the leaders of the church and say, we believe in vaccinations and, and we're going to push the vaccinations. And so I just made it, uh, uh, made myself available. I would talk about it whenever I had the mic in front of everybody in the church. I, I shared uh, paraphernalia and, and different things about reasons to get vaccinated. I would go to men's groups meetings and women's groups meetings and usher board meetings and any other meetings and just talk about the vaccination, answer questions for people. Now, admittedly, I've been a member of this church for 10 years, so they see me, they trust me, right? And that's the key. So gaining somebody's trust and delivering information and answering their questions and not um, uh, belittling their beliefs or anything like that, just answering their questions. And we went from, in March, 15% vaccinated. And the last time I looked, well, I looked every Sunday. And we went, um, last time I looked, we were at 86% vaccinated oh. as, as a church. Right? That's amazing. Right. So, Stan, I, I think we're going to, Send you on the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, that's the, that's, that's that's the thing, Rob. If, if, if everybody took their little corner of the world and tried to help their little corner of the world, then think about the impact we could have. You know, you're absolutely right, Ben. I can't say enough about that. And, you know, meeting people where they are. Um, talking to the folks within your sphere of influence. You know, I've had conversations at the hair salon. I've had conversations at the grocery store. 
you know, conversations with my family, as I mentioned before, and really it's meeting people where they are and making an impact within your sphere of influence. And I love that. I mean, going from 15 to 86% vaccinated, that's huge. You know, that's huge, Stan. And so I think if we all made that effort in that way, imagine what we could do, especially among, you know, our underrepresented, uh, underrepresented populations. I think right. that would be the key to reaching them. So it, it leads me to wonder or ask you to explain why there's so much distrust in this very particularly polarized time uh, among certain communities. They have a baseline of mistrust. Um, can you tell us about that? Well, you're right, Rob. And, and, and there's, there's several different types of, of uh, there's four types of people as far as when you look at vaccination. There's, there's those who um, believe in it, going to get the vaccine, got it, done. There's still a small percentage of those who, who say, yeah, I'm going to get the vaccine and just haven't made the effort to do so. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with, you know, I, I can't take off work. You know, I, I have so many responsibilities. I hear you may be, you know, down the next day. They don't have anything against the vaccine. They just hadn't made that effort. Then you have those who, um, for, and a lot of it's political, as we know. They've drawn that line in the sand for political reasons. They're not, they, they feel like getting the vaccine would be um, treason to their certain political party. And so they're not going to do it, irregardless. And, and those don't, don't really open themselves up to conversation and convincing. But you have a large percentage there that just, we're, we're blessed with being in the medical field being able to interpret studies, getting things coming to us all the time, we are able to disseminate false information from true information. We're, we're blessed with that education, gift, and training. M the mass majority are not, and they are getting all this information, right, wrong, false, true, coming at them, and they don't know how to disseminate all that information, so they need someone they can trust to help them get through it. So, and so then when you talk about distrust, I mean, let's just be, be honest and real when it comes to that, especially in the, in, in, in the black American community or people of color, the healthcare, um, the healthcare industry and healthcare in itself or the government for that matter, has not always been the most fair. And so you, you combine the vaccines, what looks like it's coming from both a combination of the government and the healthcare industry. When you talk about, um, you know, as far back as, you know, experimenting on slaves or even moving forward where, you know, you uh, blacks couldn't even go to the hospital and black doctors weren't even allowed in the hospital. And then you talk about things like the Tuskegee experiment and you talk about the social determinant of medicine and all that. You can understand why there is a distrust of the healthcare system for a lot of people of color. And that, and that distrust has led to decreased vaccination rates and people of color. Khadija, I know you've done a lot of work on this particular uh, issue, looking at healthcare disparities, how they've developed, the, the history of them. Can you talk about how some of that distrust developed? Absolutely. I think, you know, Stan touched on it, and a lot of it is from a historical perspective. We cannot overlook the history of Black or African-American people in this country and how 
the healthcare system, you know, from slavery days has really had an impact on poor outcomes or why that mistrust or distrust would occur. I think if you look all the way back, you know, Stan mentioned the Tuskegee experiment, but it goes much further back than that. And even in particular in my field of obstetrics and gynecology, you know, the C-section, the cesarean section procedure was practiced on enslaved women. Fistula, vaginal rectofistula repairs were practiced on enslaved women. They were not given an opportunity to give consent. They were not counseled. They were just told, this is what we're going to do. And many, many of those women lost their lives to enhance health care and treatment for the majority of the population. And so if you think about that and you understand the dynamics and the history behind it, even if you don't know all of the stories and details, growing up here in the society, you can't help but recognize and realize the history and the historical impact of those disparities and the mistreatment and the biases in the healthcare system. So fast forward now to 2020, 2021, and we're talking about a vaccine where many people think this was developed overnight and that this is an experiment. Well, that can be triggering, right? You think back to, well, when's the last time they experimented and it didn't go right for us? Often in historical perspective. So you have to give credence to that fear and really be sensitive to that and understanding that that is a very, very real reality for a number of minority um, people here in this country and in other countries. And so you have to understand that and start there. And coming from that perspective, taking the time to speak to patients, speak to your family, your friends about the why, right? Not to think, well, just get the shot because you need it, you know, just to save you, but really be why. Our population is disproportionately affected by uh, COVID-19, you know, with respect to hospitalizations and death. So if they understand that and see the facts and take the time to say, look, this was well studied, well developed. I understand your fear. I understand where you're coming from. Let's talk about the details of this. Let's, let's answer your questions and address your concerns. I think that is key to the approach. But you have to start off with recognizing and acknowledging the history, the historical perspective of biases and mistreatment in healthcare as it, as, um, as it relates to Black people or African Americans in this country. The reason why it's important for all of us as clinicians to kind of know the history and understand why the mistrust exists, because uh, let's face it, Khadijah and I, or people who look like Khadijah and I, are not going to be able to see all the Black people in America and have that conversation with us. There's four to six percent. Um, black physicians in this country, and there's 13% of this country are black and 35% in this country are people of color. So the likelihood of seeing another physician of color is less likely. You most likely, if you're, if you're a black patient or, or a person of color patient, you, you're going to see a white clinician. And, and, and so you may say, well, Stan, that, that's what puts up that barrier of, of trust right there. If they, if they have this historical perspective and here I come a white, white clinician walking in, don't I already have that barrier? You, you might be right, but I'm going to tell you. I can tell you, if you say, hey, are you, have you had the vaccine? And hey, no, I haven't gotten the vaccine. And you say, look, I know healthcare uh, organization, healthcare in this country hasn't always done right by black people. But I think we got it right on the vaccine. There were a number, a good number of, uh, of, of blacks enrolled in the study. Principal investigators were blacks. Um, when you look at outcomes uh, of, of blacks who've received the vaccine, there's been no adverse effects. And we know that the, that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting black Americans. 
I really need you to consider getting this vaccine. You, you will have reached someone right there. Five times out of 10, I'm not going to give you eight, nine, five times out of 10, you, you will reach somebody with that simple conversation. Or you at least put something on their mind to go actually seek out someone that they trust to give them that kind of information. So that's, that's why I think it's important to realize, recognize the source of distrust and be upfront and, and, and talk about it when you're talking to a person of color about getting the vaccine. Wow, that was great. So for those of you who are listening to this, I think Stan gave us some key phrases that we can use. So what I'm hearing is that there is broad awareness of the history of healthcare disparities combined with the current experience of biases that certain groups continue to experience. Uh, and so it's no surprise, but as I think Don Lemon says, uh, silence is, is not an option. We must more actively deal with that. So it's more insidious and ubiquitous than a few cases and uh, history. Healthcare disparities are, as you've described, deeply embedded in medicine and appear to be supported in surprising ways by known and trusted organization, the American Heart Association, major sports organization, the National Cancer Institution uh, or Institute has a uh, an online toolkit that treats black and white uh, patients differently and adds different points depending on one's race. Uh, we think we're so far ahead, but some things haven't changed. So, so Stan, uh, could you describe uh, a healthcare delivery topic that creates a disparity or that you've seen? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are things that we are taught that get embedded into our clinical practice that do create disparities. Now, the biggest reason for disparities uh, healthcare disparities in, in America has to do with the social determinants of medicine. That, that, that is the biggest reason, you know, ac uh, you know, education, access to education, access to medical care, um, socioeconomic status, all of that, that is the biggest reasons for disparity. But when you also look to, to, to add insult to injury, when you look at some of the things that, that we, that we get taught, look at, look at our crediting clearance formulas where many of them will allow a increase in creatinine if you're black. You know, race is a is a is less biology and it's a social construct. When they first did that study, uh, looking at um, trying to figure out how to determine kidney function, but they had a elevated creatinine, and so that was used for blacks in determining creatinine. And creatinine clearance, so it just and glomerular filtration rate. So things like that just get embedded into into algorithms, and that just perpetuates um, the bias and perpetuates the further uh, racial disparity. So, Stan, I, I so I, I'm hearing you say that having different baseline numbers for different groups of people, in this case, uh, the normal creatinine for uh, black person is considered higher, winds up simply delaying 
the care and treatment of those patients where there is no scientific data that would suggest that it really should be a higher or different baseline creatinine rate. Exactly. You know, you, you think about the downstream effect. Your, your referral to a nephrologist is later. So nephrologist treatment is later. If your kidney transplant list, your, your function is assumed to be normal when it's higher. So you're, you're, you're less likely to get your transplant first because your function is assumed to be less, uh, um, uh, not quite as bad given your race. So there are just downstream effects to that. Thank you. Um, Khadija, would you share a healthcare disparity that we know exists? Absolutely. I think, you know, for me as an OBGYN, one of the healthcare disparities that means a lot to me and I feel needs um, and requires more attention is surrounding maternal mortality rates. You know, the United States has one of the worst maternal mortality rates compared to developed nations. I believe we're 55th. And when you look at us compared to other more uh, developed nations, but when you break it down by racial um, designation, you'll see that black women actually have a higher uh, mortality rate compared to their white counterparts in the order of three times higher compared to their white counterparts. So that's a significant difference. And what's even more interesting is when you look at the rates of maternal hemorrhage or hypertensive disorders or cardiomyopathies that tend to result in these maternal mortalities, Black women don't have a significantly higher prevalence of these pregnancy conditions. However, their, their case fatality rate is two to three times higher than white women. So think about that. It's not more prevalent among black women, but the death is, the resulting effect of those issues is, disparity, is disproportionately affecting um, black women. So we have to think about why that is. And I think Stan touched on some of those reasons with respect to social determinants of healthcare, right? If, if, if minority populations or underrepresented populations are less likely to get access to care, access to care in a timely fashion, um, their environment is not conducive to a healthy lifestyle, that has an impact. And one of the theories out there regarding allostatic load, right? You know, what are the social impacts for minorities, Black people in particular? They've noted that because of this added social stress, right, of being a minority in the country, it does add to the likelihood that they may develop things like hypertension and diabetes. So all of those things are factors that we have to consider when we're looking at the disparities and addressing the why. So first of all, we know there's a, dis there's a disparity. What do we do about it? So we do have to look at some of those um, correlations or causations that lead to those disparities and systematically try to address them. So it's very interesting, you know, especially in the obstetric world, we see it all the time. And while we may not feel like we have an impact, right, because we're just like, well, what do I do? She's already coming in here with hypertension. I think one of the ways in which we can address it is to look at the access to care, right, and making sure that the care that underrepresented minorities receive is equal to their majority counterparts, right? So making sure that they get access to care equally, we're not delaying diagnoses, as Stan mentioned, you know, with respect to creatinine rates. You know, in obstetrics, we see some of that as well. You know, when do we refer someone to a maternal fetal medicine specialist? When we put them on things like baby aspirin, if they have a history of hypertension or preeclampsia, those are all things that we have to make sure that we're addressing and we're not allowing our biases to come into play when we're caring for those patients because it absolutely has an impact on outcomes. 
And Rob, we got to stop believing that genetics plays the largest portion. 99.9% of our genomes are the same, whether we're black, white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian. And then that 90, even of that 0.1% that's left, 90 to 95% of that variability has nothing to do with race. Another white male like you, Rob, that variability will likely lie, that 99 to 90, 90% to 95% variability will lie between both of you all, not race. Has nothing to do with that one gene that controls melanin. So, so we got to stop looking at genetics for the reason for these health care disparities because they don't explain it all. Genetics does not explain why blacks are 30% more likely to die of heart disease and twice as likely to have a stroke and that they, blacks have the highest risk for dementia, twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's. That, that, this has nothing to do with genetics. Cancer. Patients with lower incomes and education are more likely to develop and die from cancer comparative to those who don't. So uh, peripheral arterial disease substantially higher in blacks. Blacks are 1.7 times more likely to undergo amputation. And the five-year mortality for an amputation is 85%. So we got to stop just looking at genetics. We've got to address the whole social construct of, of, of medicine, those social determinants. And we got to address the biases if we really want to, as a, as a developed country, get better in our healthcare. Oh, and I could not agree more. And, you know, when we look at um, outcomes, right? Birth outcomes for Black women. There's, there was a study done looking at foreign-born Black women mm-hmm. that had better birth outcomes compared to mm-hmm. their um, racial ethnic counterparts here in the United States. And what they also found is the longer they lived here, then it started to shift to their, uh, to their United States counterparts and having similar outcomes if they were foreign-born. Why is that? Clearly, it's not a genetic difference or a genetic predisposition because Black people in other countries tend to have better outcomes. There is something about the society, those biases that exist here that might be unique here compared to um, Black people that live in countries where they might be the majority, right? So why is that? You really have to address that. You're absolutely right. There is not a genetic component, but I do think there are social components that we have to address that lend to these disparities. Khadija, Stan, thank you. There's so much to talk about, to think about, and to do to address our deeply embedded healthcare disparities. In our discussions related to this podcast, I've learned much from both of you, and I'm excited for your continuing mentorship. For those of you listening, I hope you've been taking a step further in your own journey to address disparities you may recognize in your practices. If you have any questions about this topic, or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.